Hello, I'm Mark Harris, Chief Investment Officer at Square Mile, and welcome to the latest episode of Talking Research. Today, I'm joined by Hugh Gimber, Global Market Strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management, and James Ashley, Head of Market Strategy at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, to discuss the markets, where the best opportunities to make money are this year, and whether the Middle East conflict is the biggest risk in markets and more. Now, let's start then with uh, what now for the consumer? So I'm going to come to you, James, first for that one. Look, it's been a challenging time for the consumer. Inflation has been running rampant. Wages have not been keeping track of that. And therefore, you've had a squeeze on negative real incomes. I guess the key message for 2024 is that the squeeze will ease. Um, and that reflects a number of factors. Utility prices beginning to come down. Inflation more generally beginning to moderate, it is important to recognize that that moderation of inflation still leaves us at an elevated price level. So it's not that prices are falling, but the inflation rate is falling. And that gives wages the opportunity to catch up a little bit. So if we look ahead to this year, I think the consumer still faces a number of headwinds, but not as intense as they've been through for the past year or two. And Hugh? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. Clearly, as a starting point, I think the lowering in inflation is absolutely helpful relative to wages. The other point I'd add is I think it does look quite different depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on. Where the US consumer had a much stronger year in 2023 than the UK. And I suspect that's to do with confidence, really. When we look at the level of the savings rate, so the proportion of income that households are saving versus spending, we've seen a very clear trend over the past couple of years where UK and European consumers have been more cautious. They've had more uh, of their incomes going into savings in comparison to the US, where consumers have been a lot more confident in spending savings down. And we think that might start to converge this year as UK and European consumers move away from the energy crisis, potential for energy bills to come down further as we move into the spring. And the US consumer potentially starts to lose some steam. So I, I agree. I think the key headline here is inflation coming down and wages turning into positive real wage growth is definitely a good thing, but maybe some differences in Europe versus the US. Now, the markets are seemingly very data dependent. Um, is this likely to wane as the key driver as we begin to see the impact of higher interest rates and greater dispersion in company earnings this year? Uh, and maybe you can start with that, Hugh. So I think to answer this question, you really have to ask why the markets are data dependent. And the answer is because the central banks are data dependent. They don't yet know whether or not inflation is definitively heading back to 2%. They don't yet know how our economies are going to handle these kind of interest rates. And therefore, the path for them is a lot less clear. If you compare that to where we stood in, say, 2022, where the central bank said we are behind the curve, inflation has got away from us. And therefore, not only can we tell you that interest rates are going up today, but we can also tell you that they'll be going up again in the future. This is why things are so much more uncertain now, because the central banks don't want to offer that kind of forward guidance as it's known, because they're just not quite sure what the right level of interest rates is and therefore, whether they're cutting in the next few months or whether that's a case of waiting later in the year. So I think the short answer is markets will continue to be very data dependent over the next few months, particularly dependent on the inflation data, because that's really what sets the tone for where central banks go from here. And James? 
Yeah, but just coming on that, I, I agree with absolutely everything that Hugh just said there. And you see the same dynamic being reflected in consensus estimates for market expectations of what we should be awaiting us this year. If I look at the, the consensus for growth this year, we use the words the consensus as if there's a singularity, there is a single market estimate. And normally that estimate reflects a bell-shaped distribution. So most estimates clustered quite tightly in the center and then you've got some uber bulls and uber bears who are in the tail of the distribution. What you see this time is that the consensus is a median number, but it reflects a huge dispersion of forecasts for what this year is going to look like. If you look at the range of estimates for growth this year, it's the widest since the global financial crisis, with the single exception of 2020, where frankly no one really knew what COVID was going to mean for the economy at the start of 2020. And the same thing for when you're looking at interest rates. If you look at what the market is saying, where the US 10-year will be at the end of this year, again, there's not a singularity. The standard deviation of estimates around that median is wider than we've seen for many, many years. So I think the conviction that the market has right now is very, very weak. And that, again, goes back to Hugh's point of the conviction that central banks, most market participants have right now is very, very weak because we are in data dependent mode. The clarity comes, I think, when central banks provide some degree of guidance about when the pivot really gets underway, when rates are coming down. But to the very point that Hugh was making, that really does depend on when the inflation numbers are supported for making that shift. So with that in mind, where are the best opportunities, do we think, to make money this year? And uh, James, if you can start with that. Well, that, that's the positive news that I, I think in most recent years, there's been a strong bias in favour of one market segment or the other, either pro-equities, pro-bonds or whatever. Where we are today, we see opportunities across the board. So, of course, we have tactical tilts depending on your risk appetite, whether you've got particular mandates that you need to fulfill. But if we look at equity markets, we think Japan is really exciting. India is really exciting. Moving down in market cap in the US, we think some great opportunities there. So equity certainly has some value left in it. At the same time, if you look at fixed income markets, there's now the potential for fixed income to deliver returns in the way that we haven't really seen for perhaps a generation. If you go back just two or three years, if you were buying a German Bund, you were buying it with a minus 1% coupon, a minus 1% coupon. Now you're getting something like 2%. In US Treasuries, you had been buying at 1%, now you're buying at 4 So you've got to be very careful about how sustainable you think those current yields are and what's the role that fixed income plays in a portfolio. But suddenly, we are in a world where fixed income is not just about risk mitigation. It's providing some returns generating capacity as well. And then, of course, the broader range of opportunities, whether that's alternatives, private markets, real estate. But I think for the point in time where we speak right now, we can identify opportunities in many market segments. And that's not a statement I would have been able to make at the start of the year for some considerable time. And uh, Hugh? So I think the point I'd add to that is that some of the best opportunities, to my mind, lie beneath the index level today. So one expectation that we have very clearly for this year is that you're unlikely to see the same kind of very concentrated returns from markets that you had in 2023. If you look at the S&P 500, the major US stock market benchmark, close to 90% of last year's returns came from just seven stocks. So that leaves you now with a market which is very, very dispersed in terms of valuations. The top 10 largest stocks in the S&P 500 are on close to 30 times forward earnings. The rest of that market is on 18 times. 
So we see this kind of dispersion across uh, sectors, across styles and within regions as well. You look at the discounts available in somewhere like Europe compared to the US or even the emerging markets. Uh, and we think that the compelling opportunities really lie beneath the index level in 2024 with the potential for some of these very, very wide valuation gaps to close. Now, this year, of course, is one of elections um, and we're already seeing a lot of noise in the press. Um, and they're going to be on everyone's mind, I think, as the year progresses. Um, what can we learn from the past? Hugh, can you start with that? Sure. I mean, I think number one here is do not try and trade around elections is the lesson that we can take from most of the recent events. I mean, you go back to Brexit, you go back to the 2016 or the 2020 US elections. There have been plenty of surprises, and I'm sure this year will hold more. So we would be very reluctant to advocate positioning portfolios based on an assumed election outcome. The second point I'd make is that history generally tells you what's happening in the economy matters more for markets than what's happening at the polls. And so people will often quote numbers like in an election year, you tend to get lower stock market returns or you tend to get higher volatility. But if you just go back through some of the recent election years that we've had, particularly for the US, 2000 was all about the tech bubble, nothing to do with what was happening with the US election. 2008, the financial crisis obviously was the dominant factor. And then 2020, more recently, clearly that was a COVID year, not a year where the election dominated. So we'll have more analysis to come later in the year as we pick apart different policy statements and manifestos, whether that's the US or the UK or India, you're going to pick the election that you're most interested in. But the bottom line is that what's happening in the economy will matter more. And we do not think these elections should be viewed as tradable events. Thank you, James. I think the other element just to recognise is that a lot of the material that's put out about the impact of elections is all about the average. But if you scratch the surface, you find that actually that average reflects a huge dispersion of outcomes. And to Hugh's point, every election cycle is different. So what can the past teach us? It, it teaches us that we have to look at these things very closely. You have to pay huge amounts of attention to them. But your ability to forecast the outcomes and to understand what those outcomes are going to mean based on historical patterns, I think is very very limited it's all about getting clarity on specific policies in a very granular way that we don't yet have at this point in time so i think it is absolutely appropriate that we say one of the key considerations for investors this year is political and geopolitical uncertainty but that doesn't mean that it dominates how you position your portfolios ahead of time you're just going to be quite reactive when the news flow gives you clarity about what that means Thank you. Now, um, sadly, we're still talking about war, but um, and at this time war in the Middle East and what is happening in the Red Sea. Does this rank uh, at the moment as one of the biggest risks uh, for all markets? Uh, James, do you want to start with that? Well, Mark, I, I listened to your question quite carefully. You said one of the biggest risks, and I think that's a fair assessment. It is one of the biggest risks. I would, I would hesitate to provide a kind of definitive ordinal ranking but if we look at the situation in the Middle East, we can clearly see it's having an impact in various areas. Shipping costs have begun to move higher. It's having an impact on commodity prices. Um, so there's all sorts of ramifications that have got direct consequences for investors. But if we broaden it out, I, I think this, again, goes back to the political dimension. We've just talked about elections. I guess that's a domestic focus, whether that's domestic UK, domestic US. But geopolitically, 
whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's the situation in Ukraine, whether it's tensions rising around Taiwan, we begin to see a more fluid geopolitical landscape. And I think that reflects a, a multipolar world where we're moving away from U.S. geopolitical dominance, which is what we've really been through for the better part of 30 years, to a situation now where there are a number of major powers and that dominance is being challenged in certain regards. So I'm not going to make any grand statements about you know who is going to be the singular power in the world, but it's quite clear that I think we're now in a very fluid situation and that has all sorts of implications for investors. Hugh. So for me, when I look at the Middle East, it all comes back to the inflation question. James mentioned it there. You see shipping costs picking up. And I think lots of people are looking at this scenario and saying, right, well, perhaps we're back in, in 2021 and 2022 and the resurgence in inflation that we saw as a result of the supply chain disruptions that we had at the time. Really important to keep this issue in context. You can see some very scary numbers around the percentage increase, for example, that we've had in shipping costs over the past few months. And yes, we have to pay attention to them, but compared to where we stood during the COVID pandemic, we are nowhere near the kind of disruption levels that we saw at the time, and nor do we have the huge surge in demand on the other side of the equation that we had coming out of COVID. So is this something that we're monitoring? Absolutely. Would a stalling out of the disinflation that we had in 2023 be a potential risk for this year? Absolutely. But I think you have to keep this in context. Our base case is still that inflation will continue to move lower in both the UK and the US over the next 12 months. This is it's one to watch, but it hasn't changed our core scenario so far. Well, let's hope for everybody's sake that we get some resolution there. Um, changing direction now. So in terms of um, on investors' minds, particularly those with sustainable investments, is really what's the outlook from here? Because it's been quite a rocky last couple of years. So, Hugh, do you want to start with that one? Of course. And I think when you're talking about sustainable investments, you absolutely first have to define what really you're talking about here. If you're considering just the the incorporation of environmental, social governance factors into a portfolio, our outlook for that will really be no different to our outlook for investing as a whole. It's the, the measurement of risk. If you're talking, however, about some of the more specific sustainable categories, so take renewable energy as an example, they've obviously been in the headlines a lot over the past 18 months or so, primarily because they are very sensitive to interest rates. Interest rates backing up sharply has put some of these um, assets under a lot of pressure. Why? Because many of them are assuming that lots of the profitability that you're going to get from some of these renewable projects is going to come a long way in the future. And therefore, as mechanically, you start to work out the value of that profit at a later date using a higher interest rate, you get some sharp swings in asset prices. So I think on that front, a year where interest rates are likely to come down, a year where we get some more stability, at least in bond yields, should provide some support for these more uh, green-like categories. Uh, but of course, going back to your original question, Mark, uh, important to say that I think there is some you know, smaller differences, perhaps, than many people think about the outlook for a sustainable investment portfolio and a traditional investment portfolio. Thank you, James. Yeah, I fully agree with all of that. I think all I would just emphasize is to say that this is not going to be necessarily a linear process. Mark, you referenced in your question that the past couple of years have been quite difficult for those who've had a primary focus on sustainable investing. 
Um, I, I think if you're looking over a five-year or 10-year forward horizon, we will see that ESG investing, impact investing, sustain, sustainable investing, green bonds, all of these become much greater opportunities in terms of the liquidity and the depth that they offer to investors. But it doesn't mean that we relentlessly march forwards. There, there may be setbacks along the way. And we've just been through one of those. But if we take a strategic time horizon, I think this is an area where we're going to see continued increased focus from both the providers of solutions and from general investors looking for solutions in that space. Thank you. Now, um, the outlook for this year, um, the traditional 60-40 portfolio, um, uh, many times killed off, of course, by the financial press. Um, what's the outlook? Does it look like a good year to you in terms of uh, the returns that might be generated from that? And James, if you could kick off with that one. I'd love to give a really rousing, um, positive message and say it's going to be a spectacular year. I think it's going to be a decent year. I think it's going to be a good year. And this goes back to your earlier question, Mark, when you were saying, you know, where are the best opportunities? And my answer was, well, there are opportunities everywhere. But, but I think we do need to be just quite clear in terms of scaling expectations appropriately. When we think about U.S. equities, for example, and Hugh made the great point that you've got to think about which part of the U.S. equity universe are you looking at? Is it the Magnificent Seven or is it the broader S&P or do you move down to the smaller mid-cap sectors? But if we just think about U.S. equities most generally, we can say, look, mid-single digit returns. That, that's probably what you should be anticipating for this year. So positive but less positive than where we were 12 months ago. If you think about fixed income, I think there is the opportunity for fixed income to deliver positive returns as well. But we've got to be realistic about the magnitude, given what is already priced into the market and how tight spreads are in corporate bond markets and so on. So I think this is going to be a pretty decent year for a 60-40 portfolio, but there is a danger that the market just gets a little bit over its ski tips and there's a need to just curb its enthusiasm. So decent, good, yes. Spectacular. I think that's somewhat questionable. You. Well, I feel like I've let you down, really, Mark, in not finding more areas to disagree with James, unfortunately. But I guess maybe let me take this one in a slightly different direction, which is to say that for me, the big benefit of a 60-40 portfolio is really that there are periods where stocks and bonds will go in different directions. And therefore, you get that diversification between the two. And I think that's what's been challenging for a 60-40 over the past couple of years, that because the problem for markets has been inflation rather than growth, you've had this simultaneous decline in stock and bond prices together. For me, looking forward, the outlook for the 60-40 is positive because now that you're seeing inflation coming down, if you do get a growth shock this year and stocks did come under more pressure, I think there is room for central banks banks to cut rates and therefore bonds to appreciate quite strongly in that kind of scenario. Again, not our base case, but thinking about the opportunities for diversification in some of those tail risk scenarios, it now makes using a 60-40 balanced portfolio between stocks and bonds a lot more appealing. Final point I'd make is that when you're trying to build a balanced portfolio today, you do just have to remember there is still an inflation risk out there. Maybe it's the Middle East, maybe it's something else that none of us have thought about so far that could push inflation higher later in the year. And therefore, yes, 60-40, but don't lose sight of some of the alternative asset classes as well that are much better placed to hedge against that inflation risk. And then you use your core bonds to hedge against the growth risks. Well, with that, uh, thank you, Hugh. And thank you, James, for joining me today and taking the time to share your thoughts 
And thank you to the listeners. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. To keep up to date with the series, please subscribe to our newsletter or you can follow us on Spotify or Apple Music. Thank you. This podcast is only aimed at professional advisors and regulated firms and should not be passed on to or relied upon by any other persons. It is not intended for retail investors who should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this podcast. Remembering past performance is not an indication of future performance. It is published by and remains the copyright of Squaremart Investment Consulting and Research. Squaremart makes no warranties or representations regarding the accuracy or completeness of the information contained herein. This podcast represents the views and forecasts of Squaremart at the date of issue and may be subject to change without reference or notification to you. Nothing in this podcast shall be deemed to constitute a regulated activity or an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity, and it is not a recommendation to buy or sell any funds or investments that are mentioned during this podcast. Thank you.